Welcome to CUCC Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. So I, uh, I feel like I need to preface this week's sermon uh, just a little bit. I originally tried to time this, this sermon series on numbers so that we would re-enter our sanctuary just as the people were entering the promised land. It was gonna be cute, right? And, uh, and yet COVID lesson number one, our plans as we lay them out don't always work that way. And we got here a little bit quicker. So instead of a triumphant story of the people getting to the promised land, we happen to have a really dark, dark, dark story of dissension and God's wrath. So, welcome back. (laughs) Buckle up. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that we read a story of the Israelite community trying to replace Moses with a new leader. The the spies had come back, told them how hard it was going to be to take the promised land, and the people wanted nothing to do with it. So they wanted to replace Moses with a new leader that would take them back to, to Egypt, back to slavery, back to the past. God becomes furious with them, threatens to wipe them all out, and Moses once again has to step in front of God's anger and convinces God to spare them. God does, in fact, spare them but promises that not one of the rebellious generation that left Egypt would ever step foot in the promised land. And this week, we get to read how the people responded to that new reality. And so join me as we read much of Numbers 16, starting in verse one. Korah, son of Izar, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, Well, they became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy. Every one of them, the Lord is with them. Why do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? So let's get a couple details straight before we keep going. Korah is the ringleader of this uprising. And the truth is, his complaint, it doesn't sound that particularly evil, does it? Korah rounds up 250 representative leaders who essentially say, right, you're not special, Moses. We're all holy. And just saying holy, it simply means set apart. Right? We're all set apart. The Lord is with us too. We make the decisions here. Why, why do you think you're in charge? Right? And, and we'll get there. So when Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all of his followers, in the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near. 
The man he chooses will come near him. You, Korah, and all of your followers are to do this. Take censers, which are little metal containers in which you burn incense in. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. At first, Korah says, Moses, you have gone too far. And Moses says, Levites, you have gone too far. And that, that's a clue that we're supposed to catch. It's supposed to grab our attention. This uprising isn't coming from the back of the line. These are the Levites. They're the, they're the priests. They're the ones who surround the temple, organize the sacrifices. They are the ones that ceremonially stand between God and the people. And now they're using their position in the community. They're assigned spiritual leadership to move the people away from Moses, to move the people away from God. And you, you gotta be feeling for Moses. Right, especially if you've been reading along with us the last six weeks, you gotta be feeling for Moses. This last week, twice now, Moses has been the only thing standing between God and the people's destruction. Right, he's the only reason that the show hasn't already been shut down, and yet they still want to overthrow him. They still wanna take the community back to slavery. And you almost get a sense that Moses is tired in this passage. Like he's had enough and simply says, okay, fine. If that's the way you want this to go down, if you really want to bring God back into this, then, then show up in the morning with some burning incense and we'll let God choose who's holy. We'll let God choose who's set apart. We keep reading. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not accept their offering I've not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses then said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow. You and they and Aaron, each is to take his censer and put it in incense, 250 censers in all, and present it to the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each one of them took his censer and put burning coals and incense and it stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tent of meetings. When Korah had gathered all of his followers in opposition to them at the entrance of the tent of meetings, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. In case you've been counting the last couple of weeks, that's a third time that God has offered to wipe out the entire assembly. And this time it's just as blunt. Moses, Aaron, stand back and let me take it from here. Let me end this once and for all. Back to the passage. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah 
Dathan and Abiram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything that belonged to them, or you will be swept away because of their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram had come out where they were standing. They came with their wives, children, little ones at the entrance to their tent. And then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it wasn't my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me to you. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. I feel like I need to take a second and offer some kind of trigger warning, but I I think you all know what happens next. As soon as Moses finished saying all these things, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed all of them and their households and, and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is gonna swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. This concludes our reading of scripture this morning. I threw a curveball at the Saturday night service and stood up and was like, okay, what did you hear? How did that make you feel? There's too many of us to have a conversation, but most of their faces looked like yours. I know I haven't seen the bottom half of your faces for a while, but I'm still good at reading body language. Not a big fan of the story, right? That isn't the image of God that you would hope for or would come to expect. The truth be told, I don't think that's the image of God that that Moses had hoped for either. Last week, Moses said, come on, be the God you said you were, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This week, he says, why? Why would you destroy everyone just because of the, the toxic voice of a small minority? And so I get your discomfort. I think Moses shares your discomfort. Now, I know it's not easy, but I'm going to ask that we move past or at least set aside the divine violence of this story for a second. Let's give it a second to settle in because it's real and it's unsettling, but then let's move on to another conversation. As we talked about last week, there are many things that that play into stories of divine violence and, and wrath in the Old Testament. And today's story is less concerned with setting Moses up as the moral exemplar of the story and more concerned with teaching a lesson to anyone who would dare read material like this. So if God's not the moral exemplar of our story, 
Who is? Well, this week, it's Moses and Aaron who are the ones whose leadership is confirmed and, and whose, whose actions may need a closer look. So let's spend some time considering Moses' leadership style and see if there's anything we can glean from there. But we also have a couple, maybe it's too soon. <laughs> we also have a couple hundred charbroiled antagonists too. Right? We have a crew of, of dissenters who threaten to bring the whole ship down with them. So we should probably talk about them for a second as well. So let's start with the dissenters. Let's get them out of the way, so to speak. They're ticked. Right? They are ticked off because the promised land isn't on the table for them anymore. Right? They won't get to enjoy the land of milk and honey. They're never going to get to see them big grapes again. They're furious. And if they, could, if they could just calm their fury for a second, they could just access a, a moment of introspection, they'd realize that this, this whole thing's kind of on them. They saw them big grapes for themselves. They were ensured a victory by God. But they were so afraid of the future, so afraid of the giants in the promised land that they tried to replace God, overthrow Moses and run back to Egypt. And now, in, instead of taking responsibility, they simply blame God, blame Moses, Aaron, anyone they can find to lash out at. The truth is, they're kind of justified in being angry, right? in grieving the loss of them big grapes. But their anger is misdirected. Moses isn't the problem. Moses is the only reason that they're still alive, or I guess that they were still alive. God isn't the problem. God's the only reason they got out of slavery in the first place. Taking responsibility is the only way they're going to get out of this mess, but instead they double down on the blame game over and over and over, and they're about to ruin it for everyone. Now, I know 250 people sounds like a lot of angry voices, but if you remember week one of this sermon series, they took a census. They took a census, and there were over 600,000 households in this community. And so 250 dissenters, that's less than one-tenth of one percent of the community. And yet they're jeopardizing the future health of the entire nation. But as it is in, in your own life and, and mine, negative voices are always given a disproportionate amount of, of time and power. Even on a personal level, you know, you can receive a hundred compliments in a day. And one negative voice is enough to ruin the entire day. Whether a colleague at work, a kid at school, a family member, a, a church member even, have you ever come across a chronically angry, toxic dissenter? Truthfully, they, they almost always have a justifiable reason to be angry. Right, their anger, resentment, disappointment, it's usually real. And that's why it's, it's often, they're often able to convince people to, to take on their anger, to share in their complaint. 
right? The, the, the anger that we feel is real. The problem is with our inability to honestly assess the source of our anger. The inability to take responsibility for our role in the conflicting feelings. The emotions are not the problem, it's the lashing out in the wrong direction. And it's not just the chronically angry, right? We all do it at times. In subtle and nuanced ways, it sneaks into our lives. If you've ever found yourself dabbling in the blame game, you know how addictive it can be, right? And I don't use that word lightly. Once you get good at it, the blame game is like a shot to our nervous system, right? It cures anxiety immediately as you convince yourself, and better yet, someone else, that all the anger and frustration you're feeling is someone else's fault, right? And, and we begin to believe our own lies, right? We start believing ourselves, taking another shot of self-justification at every small perceived injustice. We end up constructing a worldview in which we're always the victim and they're always the villain. And at some point, like our three families who are swallowed up by a hole in the ground, at some point, the blame game, the it's everyone else's fault game, the game has us digging ourselves a hole that's too deep to get out of. Eventually, we run out of people to blame, right? And we either have an, we experience an identity crisis or we have to find a new office building, a new group of friends, a new, a new church who don't know the games we play. Friends, one very real and violently direct lesson from this story is that even a small group of self-justified angry dissenters can ruin an entire community's chance at milk and honey. And so if, when, you feel angry, resentful, disillusioned with any reality around you, it's okay. It's completely natural. Your body, your mind is sending you signals, messing with your chemistry. But if you feed those signals with the blame game, if you empower them with victim mentality, if you drag other people into the hole with you, it's not going to end well. So how does Moses handle this? How does Moses handle this situation and these people? What might we glean from his leadership? The first thing that strikes me is that Moses never lashes out. Right? He never gets defensive, at least not publicly. In fact, the language that's often used when Moses is, is confronted with anger, complaint, is that he falls face down. It should be noted that this falling face down isn't a sign of, of Moses' fear or insecurity. It's, it's an intentional act of humility. Moses is taking on a posture of prayer. How easy is it? when confronted with people's misguided emotions to, to puff up our chest, right? To put up our fist, to, to carry our voice over theirs. And instead, Moses takes on a posture of prayer. He refuses to engage in the power struggle. 
And this is important to sit with for a second because it's also the primary distinguisher between traditional leadership and spiritual leadership. It's a, a posture of prayer, an orientation towards the spirit, a reliance on more than one's own strength, but on one's connection to the source, to the divine, one's relationship with God. Moses is able to keep his cool over and over, not because he's the coolest cat, but because his spiritual waters run that deep. Next, despite holding all of the chips, Moses doesn't seek revenge. In fact, on several occasions when God offers him ultimate revenge on everyone, Moses begs God not to give the people what they deserve, but to to forgive them. Instead of publicly humiliating them or taking them out, Moses is constantly falling on his own sword in an attempt to absorb the toxic energy in the air. Yes, as we read today, eventually God's wrath plays out. But even in today's story, not without Moses warning everyone to get back. Right, because it's Moses, he takes on this posture of prayer. He keeps his cool, refuses to get revenge. And then finally, Moses doesn't give up on the people that he's been called to. He doesn't walk away. He probably could have walked away, taken the tent of meetings, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire with him. He certainly could have walked away. In fact, God even, even offered to start over with him to transfer all of the promises to him and his family, and he doesn't do it. He refuses to take the easy way out. This, my friends, is shocking to me. For six weeks now, we've been watching as Moses gets beat up, blamed, dragged through the mud, and he's still in it to win it. Guys, he's he's the franchise player that has lived through multiple rebuilding phases and simply isn't looking for the next dream team to inflate his ego. Moses is sticking around. I said this last night too, but I couldn't help while reading and writing this part of the sermon to think of of our council chairperson, to think of JT who has kept his cool for the last 18 months, even when people around you, myself included, have not always been the coolest of cats. You've responded with grace and wisdom where others might have passed blame or simply covered their own tracks. You've, you've upheld and modeled the core values of our church and you stuck with us for 18 months for two terms. You chose never to walk away. We are so lucky to have had you this past 18 months. And I know you've left the church better than you found it, so thank you. Back to Moses. The archetype of a spiritual leader. A giant of the faith in in three major world religions. He exercises his authority by taking on a posture of prayer, by keeping his cool refusing not to lash out or seek revenge, and ultimately, by choosing not to walk away. This is an ancient 
story, a horrific and dramatic story of a vocal minority being swallowed up by the earth and consumed with fire. It's a story of how not to follow, but it's also a really good roadmap of how to lead. And so, as you go about following in the different areas of your life in which you are not in charge or in control, do not get lured in by the blame game. It might be tasty at first, it might help build up your ego, it might seem justified, and you might even be able to convince some people to take the journey with you, but the blame game, the lack of honest introspection, it's simply not good for your soul, and it won't end well for you. As you go about leading, as many of you do, as you lead in the different spheres of influence in your life, in your place of work, within your family, your friend group, within the church, might you also take on a posture of prayer before speaking a word? Might you keep your cool? Might you relinquish the need for revenge? Might you take your cues from Moses? Spiritual leadership is not an easy path, but but it's the right one. It's the only one that will end up with the people of God and the promised land still together. Amen. Next week, it's gonna be a little more fun. We're gonna meet my all-time favorite character in the Bible, a talking donkey. Balaam is a magician of sorts who sets out to set a curse on all of Israel and his talking donkey gets in the way of his plans, literally. It is going to be fun. Come back.